Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. Robbie here, and this month, my guest is Ray Martin. Many of us live out our lives while tied to our careers, our homes, our families, and our friends. This can be joyous, but for some, it is stifling. Ray Martin lived that life and achieved great success, even being named Daily Telegraph Business Leader of the Year in 2002 as the CEO of a company that developed business leaders. But when his personal life changed dramatically, he realized his work was not making him happy, and he set out on a mission to discover his authentic self. Now, as the author of Life Without a Tie, which, as I explained later in the episode, took me quite a while to get the play on words um, in that in that title. Um, as the author of Life Without a Tie, Ray tells the story of a journey of exploration that took him to 28 countries, saw him launch a global foundation, become a marathon runner, act in a play, and turn himself into a coach whose clients have included more than 100 people across Asia. In this episode of the podcast, Ray describes how he learned to serve people who are trapped in a life that others expect of them and how he allowed his inner voice to return and guide him to a life of possibility, fulfillment, and greater self-awareness. We talk about the confirmation signals we need when making decisions, how acts of service can lead to personal breakthroughs, how we become the actor, scriptwriter, and director in our own lives, or how we can, um, the shift from materialism to exper- experientialism, uh, easy for some to say, uh, the power of intention to deliver the work and life you want, um, and the freedom that comes from feeling less attached to each possibility. Ray shares, shares wisdom about the cycles of desire and craving that don't always lead us to what we need and offers sage advice on the tools that can guide us to a place of authenticity. And, and that really does, for me, feel like the theme of this episode. Um, that Ray, in over a decade of, of traveling, of uh, living out of a backpack and and detaching from what life had meant, it does feel like he's learned so much about about authenticity. And I hope that this conversation invites you into that in your life, whatever way that is. And we try and touch, I try and touch on that a little bit in the conversation. I I did have that in mind that, of course, not everyone is in a situation where they can um, leave the ties in their life behind in the way that Ray did. Before we dive into the show, um, I just want to remind you that um, if you'd be interested in being coached by me on growing your business, if you're a coach and on thriving as a, as a person while you do it, you might be interested in joining the Coaches Journey community, which is my flexible, affordable group coaching program um, for other coaches. Um, it's a chance to connect with other coaches. It's a chance to be coached by me. You can join from as little as £10 a month or pay up to as much as £100 a month. And, and at different levels, you get um, different numbers of group calls every year and, and potentially some one-on-one time with me, depending on what level you're at. Um, if that's the kind of thing that's interesting to you, check out thecoachesjourney.com slash community. Um, and a big thank you to Alex Whitten, Joey Owen, Kusum Ravindranath, Alex Swallow, and Ken Bruren for their ongoing support. You can also become a supporter of the Coach's Journey podcast um, if you really value this show and you can uh, pay a small amount of money every month. And that helps to keep the podcast going um, and help it reach new people so that together we can have even more amazing coaches out in the world making a difference in the way that Ray now does. Um, in his work as a coach, and, and we get towards the end of the conversation into some of the ways that, that that unfolded as he returned to working in that way, as he found coaching, and you know which he was asked to do, having, having won that award in 2002 and, and came back to it and, and brought a new life to it um, in recent years, um, and how the connections and the way that he'd uh, authentically or with integrity tried to bring his business to a close you know, as that period of his life ended, actually fed his coaching business when that started. Uh, so, yeah, look, I hope you have a wonderful time getting to know Ray. Uh, his book is um, 
really readable and full of stories and we don't get into uh, probably even half of those in this although I try and touch on some of the themes that emerge in that book so it'll give you a flavor but if um if you like the stories that Ray tells then then definitely check the book out there's there's links to get that in the show notes or wherever you are reading about this um so without further ado I can't wait to just introduce you to Ray Martin Ray, welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, Robbie. I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, it's really nice to have you here. Um, I was just saying to you that I've been in your world a little bit for the last few days, particularly as I've been in your book, um, Life Without a Tie, which we'll talk about more as we go on, and which I embarrassingly recently, just before this call, realized is a play on words. I have a bit of a track record of this. I, I, I was a had another guest on the show and just realized that her podcast has um, got a great name that I wasn't, was a play on words that I hadn't got, but life without a tie, lovely. And we'll talk yeah. more about why that's a play on words and, and that kind of thing later. And, um, but yeah, and, and, and we've first, we've spoken on the phone before and we first connected um, when I was a guest on the better, bolder, braver podcast, which people should definitely yeah. t- check out. Um, they're, they're doing great, great work. And um, Francis, I've spoken to a few times and, she always says really nice things about me. So I really like her because of that, obviously. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, think, and think everyone should listen to her. And Quite we, right. Yeah. And, but so so we'll put, we can put a link to that in. And, and we connected after that. Um, and it's really exciting to have you here to, you know, often, sometimes on this show, we're really like uncovering people's journeys. But mm-hmm. you, because of the book, I guess, have been, well, and because of your blogging and, and various other things, have been really thinking about your journey now for a long time as a journey. Does that yes. feel right? It does. I mean, I never thought of it that way at the start. And I certainly never, ever would have dreamed of writing a book when I left. And I never had that intention. But interestingly, as I met people on the road and they asked me, what are you doing, Ray? Why are you traveling? And how did it start? And I told them the story. Often they would ask me, well, are you going to write a book about that? Because I'd really like to read it if it comes out. (laughs) So I just laughed and said... Who knows? In a way, who wants to read a book about someone finding themselves? I can't think of anything more boring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I should say there's a lot of it, Ray, and I, and I haven't, like, I yeah. haven't read all of it. I, I've read, you know, bits of it, dipped in and out, chosen pieces to read here and there, and it's not boring. That's no, for sure. No, like, it's right. a really readable, compelling story, particularly for me, for somebody who's really interested in how do people grow, yeah. how do they change, what right. happens in our lives that mean that we take a different route than we might have otherwise taken. Yeah, and, exactly. And there's lots of that in there. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I mean, and there's all kinds of ways we could kind of get into it. And maybe we'll come back to, I'd quite like to come back to no the decision about writing the book. But often, and I know this is going to probably take us somewhere into the middle of, of your story as you see it. Maybe, maybe not actually. The question that we often start these shows with is, when did you, some of the work you do now is coaching and, and yes. some of what you've done over the last, you know, at least decade, maybe more, depending on, you know, you yeah, can tell us, but yeah. when did you first come across coaching? Well, in different ways. I mean, it, when I first came across it, it wasn't really thought of as coaching, let's say. You know, in the early 80s, I was really fascinated about understanding what fundamentally was driving me in my life. And I I turned to sort of spiritual education for that, you know, and I didn't know many people in the 1980s who could help me learn about that stuff. It was like looking for a needle in a haystack. Even when I was at school, I remember as a schoolboy sometimes saying to my 
classmates in in the playground stuff so, do you ever think about why we're here and they look at me and go what do you mean i say well why we were born what we're here what's the purpose for our life you know <laughs> they just they just look sort of bewildered or laughed or something you know no one would engage me with that conversation so i was always had there was always a part of me that was kind of fascinated by that so that goes right 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 back but then i started working with a group that i met primarily through a self-awareness program i did in the early 80s and uh, and all of those people have done that program and so we were all very very interested in how can we use our daily lives to become more self-aware to become better communicators to become more authentic more real how can we develop personal power presence and all those things and we you know i was in my 20s when i was invited to be a part of this working group and i thought wow what an opportunity so i really took it grabbed it and uh, i learned a really a lot about coaching because i was on the receiving end of a lot of it but then when i started my own business in 97 i was in my beginning i was 37 at that stage i felt i was ready to start my own company so i knew the challenge was going to be you know how do i bring people on board and coach them and develop them into the management roles and leadership roles that we're going to need so I was doing that without even thinking of it as coaching, just to make the business work. But then in 2002, <laughs> I was I was a recipient of the Daily Telegraph Business Leader of the Year Award for the work that I'd done. And it was considered to be a shining example of visionary leadership at the time. Um, and, you know, I, I don't mind saying I think it was, you know, I did. A, I think I did a really good job. But because of that, because of the press that followed in the newspapers, um, people then started calling me directly saying, could you coach me? I'm a leader. You know, I want to do what you're doing. You know, how do you do that? And for the first time ever, I thought, oh, I'm, you know, I, I've obviously been doing coaching because <laughs> it's worked. But I never thought of it till, until then. And that was even before coaching was quite a thing in business. Even it was only really happening in sport, not in the world of business. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's interesting, isn't it? And, and so when you were, so you kind of had some of that. I mean, you had some of it in you. Yeah. I love that story about being yeah. on the playground. It's like trying yeah. to find the, the the spiritual guidance, and you didn't find it in the playground. It sounds like yeah. that wasn't that wasn't Not the place, but you tried. Yes. Um, and and then that that came with you until you were learning it by doing it. And I think many of us, you know, many people who come to coaching feel find that it feels a bit like home it's like oh i've been kind of doing this thing the whole the whole time and yeah and, and it sounds like you had some of that but when you got these requests and i want to come back in a sec because ever, everyone who's listening who doesn't know your story will be like what was the business and what was so special about it that made that visionary leadership happen and and what did you create we want to come back to that but first what you know with the people that came to you saying will you coach me can you help me do what i do what did you did you say yes what did you do with them how did you support them well, I wasn't sure because I'm still the CEO of an operating company. So I, you know, I couldn't see myself stopping that. But what happened six months after sort of shook everything because my business partner, who was the woman I was married to, who'd helped me build that business from the day one, we built it together. I feel like we were the business equivalent of a kind of that's an old reference, but I always think of Torville and Dean, you know, the ice skaters. But we came together to build this beautiful thing and we did. And we did what was brilliant about our partnership was that we were yin and yang you know like i did the sales and contracting and the winning of the clients and the vision of the business and all that and charlotte led the team that delivered against the commitments we made in the projects 
and made sure we delivered what we said in the contract and we always exceeded you know where we could so it was a brilliant combination because we didn't overlap or tread on each other's toes because neither of us knew each other's side of it and um and so when she announced quite shockingly one day six months after i won that business leader of the year award i'm leaving you and i'm leaving the company it was like i thought it was a joke honestly when she first told me i really couldn't get it it was like i was she was must have been talking to someone else but um it's it did land and i i realized then that what i defined in my own terms as success wasn't actually what i really knew what success was meant to be and i'd been i sort of been followed uh, uh, a measure of success that didn't actually i didn't really place any real authority in myself and uh, that that was a shockingly awakening moment when that happened and that was and that's the point where i thought there's that these people were still coming to me asking for one-to-one coaching and then i started to think actually i'm i want i might move in that direction i'm not sure but that's what i think i'm probably going to do yeah and and let's rewind then a little bit and and talk a bit about the, the business the one that led yeah. to the award the one that you ran with yeah. charlotte so Obviously, I know some of I know some of this from having looked, read the book, read that part yeah. of the book. Like, but but for people who haven't, say a little bit about what the business did, where it came from, and and yeah, what was it that you created there that was so special, yeah. and how did that come about? Yeah, our mission was to what I would say bring humanity to the workplace, but we wanted to do it in a way that help was could be held to account financially, because I'd had a short period working for a software company that had always sold the software on these five-year return on investment business cases and i thought there's got to be a way of building a five-year return on investment business case around a coaching program i know no one's doing it and then no one knows how to but surely we've got to figure this out because there must be a way of proving that coaching a team of managers does lift performance as well as it being great for the culture and for the alignment and the sense of purpose and meaning and all of those things. But that must all add up to more better business. Otherwise, who's going to buy that? You know, so that was really the what we did. We set up a company that was delivering performance improvement in the business, but through, you know, principled and purposeful leadership and engaging employees fully and motivating them at the heart level. We even called the program Heart and Soul Management Program. And so we innovated these eight core principles um, in the program, and we then showed companies how to put it in place. But before we did any of that, we spent two or three months building a business case with two bean counters, accountants from their company. We said, give us all your data on sort of customer service or sales or whatever we were working in the business. And we pulled it apart with a fine tooth comb until we could find where the uplifts in percentages of conversion rates in their process would deliver a, a massive hit to the bottom line and then when we were coaching managers as part of the program we weren't just coaching them to be nice guys we were coaching them to deliver a 16-week uplift in performance which we specified in these benchmark tests we did so you've got to get your conversion from five percent to eleven percent in 16 weeks and you've got 16 weeks to coach your people to do it you know so it was all brilliant you know it's really innovative and that's why probably one of the reasons I won the award because it was really innovative and it actually worked. Um, and it was and it was partly coaching that you, that the company was delivering. That it was we were delivering we delivered the training and the coaching and the design of these programs and all the support needed to make these benchmark performance improvements happen. Yeah. 
but yeah. you were working and it's like i love the description of that partnership you yeah. were working pretty much you weren't doing the delivery you weren't yeah, at that exactly. point connecting with the people directly you were doing the fine tooth comb and and selling the stuff yeah. and all that kind of thing that was the whole thing you know that that was why i wasn't happy in my life because i had this mission to work with people to to make these amazing shifts in the in their lives and i never got to enjoy any of it it's a bit like if you like cooking you know i financed the restaurant and instructed the builders but i never actually got to eat in the restaurant yeah. um so yeah that that was a that was a big part of why i decided to not try and rebuild that life when it fell apart yeah yeah so you had that choice because there was yeah there was that moment and yeah yeah what a, lot, a... A, a lot of friends said right you've built this really successful machine now it's kind of like a money printing machine it's it, as long as you keep it going it will keep producing business but without charlotte doing it with me which was the joy of it because we were such great i i just didn't energetically feel like i wanted to i just knew in my heart i didn't want to even though logically and financially it was such a sensible suggestion yeah i couldn't imagine doing that with another person yeah yeah i, th I think that's one of the interesting things that comes across came across to me reading reading the book ray is like there's this and you talk about it different ways at different times the the underneath despite lots of other stuff going on the rational sensible things to do there's a kind of there's an inner voice that you would listen to yeah, in exactly. key moments exactly and that's one of them i guess it's like it doesn't make yeah. any sense on yeah. a rational level because there's a successful business award-winning business yeah you know i mean yes to, to lose an inspirational leader from a big business you know you know we don't know what would have happened maybe it wouldn't yes. have worked right because actually maybe it required the two of you and all that kind of thing but that you know if if somebody wanted successful business, a really good way to get it might be, you know, yeah, take that one that's already existing, running and running. Yeah, um, exactly. That you knew that wasn't the right thing to do at that moment in time. It absolutely not. And I I'd road tested it. It wasn't because I just felt that way. I'd road tested it because I went to a, a rival company and I I disclosed in confidence to them what was happening with Charlotte and I and what what I saw could be. The impact it would have on the business and invited them to make an offer to merge our business into theirs while it was still you know running with clients etc etc and so we we had a couple of conversations along those lines but the offer that was made to, to us meant that we would have to be tied to a period where we would have to stay for 18 months working together to to meet certain targets that would be part of the deal etc and when we talked about that given the state of our marriage and how that we were coming apart and and all those things it just seemed energetically completely unfeasible that we could do that yeah and so i knew my energy was not gonna be right for that yeah, yeah. that's how i knew i, I mean because i put it to the actual real test and sort of went down that road yeah uh and so just to kind of round out a little bit the the pre the company the mm. marriage coming to bits mm. part of this story for now maybe we'll come back to it mm. if you look back at the that that leadership because you won you won an award for the leadership of that business right as well yes. as the the business i mean if the business yeah. was mainly um, for the leadership and but it was for the leadership so as a leader or what was special about what you were doing in that company and, and what was special for those, for the people who worked for you? Oh, so many things. I mean, and I say these things are quite today. They're com much more common. I see 
this kind of stuff being considered and spoken about and implemented in businesses. So now, if I say it now today to you, it won't sound anything particularly impressive because it's kind of gone that way. But this was in the year 2000. This is like 25 years ago. We were talking about creating a vision that everybody had agency in and could align with, um, being kind and compassionate to the people working in the company and focus on them, on developing them into superstars and developing them as talent, you know, and to make sure that was the focus. If they came to the company, they knew that our interest as a, as a guiding leadership team was making them into great people to with commercial value and, you know, fulfill lives. And we took this holistic approach to it. So, and so we, we sort of saw these connections between, you know, creating a sort of family, like almost like a family or community atmosphere and delivering a great service to clients. There was no separation. They were sort of two sides of the same coin as we saw it. Yeah, and, and why, like you say that, well, I would say my yeah. my feeling would be that's talked about a lot, but it's still relatively uncommon to work in a company yeah. that can actually pull that off, right? Even 25 years later. Yeah, so but you've got the that, privilege in a small business when you're the owner of it and you call the shots if you like you've got the privilege of getting everyone to kind of willingly and with their whole hearts give their permission for that to to be the dynamic in the team until it gets to a certain size and then it starts to you start to have challenges to hold that in place as i'm seeing that in some small businesses that i know of now so and and what was it like how did you have the inspiration the the creativity the drive to to create that where did that come from how did you know well, even know it was possible yeah because both charlotte and i had worked in the same organization before which was started by the guy who was my spiritual educator uh-huh. and and he'd been my spiritual guide and guide and mentor for like 10 years and i'd worked for him in some of the commercial businesses he had and he had a very uh, uh, to my mind a beautiful philosophy of building this kind of future with a federation of small businesses of people that he'd helped to support in their development so they could all step up to own and operate businesses which he'd have an interest in but he'd help them do it in a kind of very kind of fair and open way it didn't i don't think the experiment ultimately worked but at the time it 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 taught me everything i needed to know about and i grew a lot in that organization that was part of with in his organization and that's where i've seen the principles in action that's where I've seen it had worked and delivered, you know, transformative results. And that's where Charlotte and I had learned our trade. Mm-hmm. But we we just felt we could take it to another level by by talking about it through a slightly more compassionate and softer lens, let's say. Because in my experience, those early days, you know, a lot of it had been done with quite hard, like almost like boot camp style military, you know, pressure on people. And it wasn't feeling so good all the time. Mm-hmm. so i just want to catch a few things so you did find a spiritual did you call it a spirit, him yeah. the spiritual yeah. guide you did find a spiritual guide in the end and how did you find him and what what i mean if, if you want to share what was his name yeah. and how did that you said you worked with him at various times yeah this is a guy called robert daubany yeah i don't know what, what he does these days i've lost contact with him but he started a, a self-awareness program in the uk called exegesis and it was like a four-day intensive personal development seminar a bit like i i would say the closest thing i'm aware of today that's like it is the landmark forum Mm. um so you kind of go into you know a group 
and in a room for four days and do all sorts of work together. And you're really shaking up your reality and you're really examining what all the conditioning you've accumulated in your life has resulted in and how much of it is you know, operating on you without you even realizing it or aware of it and how often you're in autopilot and how little ownership you take for your own life and how much you blame and, and, and hold others, you know, as give excuses for why you're not doing the things you dream of and all that, it, you know, it just, it, it just attacks you. <laughs> it kind of works on you on every, on every angle. I, I loved it. I have to say it really, really served me to do that program. It, I came out of that with a, almost a kind of, oh, like, like a sort of bright light of optimism shining about how life could be that I hadn't had. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was amazing. And then, I mean, yeah, I love the story. And it, again, it just plants the seeds for, I think, you're clearly you're somebody who has found these opportunities to grow in all kinds of ways across your life. And I love the, the, the that, yeah. you know, the sense of the bright, the, the kind of bright eyedness coming out of that yeah. program. I can kind of remember times like that in my life. And, and, and then you managed to, you stayed connected to him. You worked with him yeah. at different times. Yeah, after because that. when I joined, it was just a, a rag bag of people who'd done this seminar. And we all sort of thought, because I was working, when I did the seminar, I was a sales rep for a printing company in Harleston. That was my daily life. My Driving my Ford Cortina to the office, smoking a few cigarettes at, at my desk in those days, <laughs> pretending to make a few sales calls, but not doing very many, and going on a couple of appointments and getting orders for printing. So my life was, you know, not that interesting. It was pretty banal and pretty mediocre. Then I did this seminar. I met all these amazing, fired up, high-wired people. And all of us had the same experience, which was, oh, my God, it's so much better being in this space than in those spaces we have to work. What if we could create a workspace like this? We could all then earn our living doing something together and have all this energy and growth and personal development with it. And so. We came up with the idea of starting a business together that would enable us all to earn a living. And we've created the first ever telephone marketing agency in Britain. Hmm. And it was really, really successful as a business venture. It, it grew very quickly. Client demand was massive. And that spawned a, then a training company because clients who came to see our telephone agents communicating on their behalf, which they were paying for, they went, oh, my God, could you train our people to communicate like you do? Because you communicate so powerfully and directed and focused and energetically, and you know, it's wonderful. We, we've got no one in our company that communicates like you guys. So we started a training company, training people in communication skills. Then the clients were going, oh, my God, this is brilliant. Could you train our managers to coach people like that? So we started a management training company, and it just grew and grew and grew because it was, it was so leading edge. Yeah, that was, we were just doing it different to everyone else and with energy. And yeah. with purpose and intention and a real mission to change things for real. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you don't mind me saying this. Um, <laughs> I, I did not know the bit about the telephone marketing agency. And I don't think yeah. that most people would think of, especially perhaps these days, of telemarketing as yeah. being a place where this group of kind of awakening, dynamic, uh, relationally educated people would have an impact. It, on some levels, it makes yeah. complete sense, though, doesn't it? But it, but yeah, you wouldn't expect the the foundations of a training company, the heart and soul training company, right, to be yeah. from telemarketing. 
essentially. So no, what, you t- t- tell me about that. Like, is there anything you could say about that original telephone marketing that yeah, I, I was an agent for two years myself. And yeah. so my day, you know, I was making hundreds of calls a day and thousands a month. Um, the, that was a beautiful part of Robert's vision. You know, he knew he needed to transform society, which is one of his stated goals. He knew he'd need to create a team of very powerful and influential communicators who could go into society and persuade people to do things differently. So what better way to hone those skills at the front edge than having to persuade people in companies to take sales appointments with, you know, with IBM or whoever it was at the time we were representing, you you needed a lot of energy and focus and persuasion to get those appointments booked for those companies. And you had to develop and hone your communication skills. So we all became terrifically good communicators. It's, well, for me, it's been, that's probably the biggest gift I took from that period. Because not only did I sharpen my own communication skills, um, I also understood the dynamics of how those kinds of conversations are constructed because I became a script writer for the campaigns and I saw the, the actual logic that's applied to the flow of a conversation and how you steer it and how you direct it. And I've used those skills in my life every day since then, even though I'm not in telemarketing, I haven't been for absolutely years. If I've got to plan a call with someone tomorrow, I will, I will be thinking using the same set of tools. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. in a way, after you'd done that, no wonder when you were running the business with Charlotte, you were successfully selling this thing. Yeah. yeah <laughs> because, yeah, like no. you said, you were finally tuned sales machine persuasion machine yeah, at that point correct yeah so so uh, that had been that had been my strength throughout all the businesses i've been involved in i'd always ended up in the sales area because i would knew how to communicate about something that made people want to buy it <laughs> so, yeah i wish i could do as well with my book <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you will right i'm, sure, I'm absolutely sure you will yeah. i think it's a really i think it's a really interesting I've had a client recently who is a senior salesperson, which was a lot, you know, he, he found himself, I think at one point, a little bit surprised at, at just how good a manager he was. Yeah. And I said, well, yeah. I'm not remotely surprised. You know, this wasn't really a co- coaching yeah. moment. We were just talking. It's like, I'm not really remotely surprised about that because, you know, sales is about connecting with people and understanding right. how they work and understanding what they want and finding ways to help them get what they want. And, and so, yeah, it's these, yeah, sales skills are skills to be, Used yeah, they're, they're relationship skills, really. Um, because I think, I don't know if we want to talk about this, but I think selling is, the job of selling is really matching needs to to what you have. Yeah, that's it. You know, like if, 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 if someone needs what you have, it's great. But if, if that person or that company doesn't need the thing that you have, it, it doesn't matter how skillful you are, there's just not a match. So it's really how you, how you do a lot of that matching which is there's quite a lot of mechanics to it i think but at the end of the day i think what makes really great salespeople is they go they just take care of the person in that process of matching and they do so much they don't need to do they you know they'll check in with them at home and they'll just make sure they've got everything they need and they'll just be very courteous and say is there anything else i can do for you you know that i just want to make sure you've got everything you need from me at this moment that's i think where people fall down and in 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 current era is that no one goes that extra mile anymore it doesn't seem yeah or actually like one of the patterns you know i feel like i see with coaches for example is that because for a lot of salespeople, that thing that you've just described kind of got lost or got obscured yeah 
now people don't people forget that that's what sales is about or, or have never experienced yeah. it because actually a lot yeah. of there's a lot there are other there is another way of selling which is kind of like is more like tricking people now, i don't think it works in the long term right but it, yeah. you know you can kind of trick people or use influence tricks to I had a great conversation with uh, somebody on uh, Henrietta Nelson on this podcast, and we were talking about the scarcity kind of trick. You know, if you yeah. buy right now, you'll get this amount of money off. Yeah, you know, which may or may not be true. We don't know that in the moment when we're talking, but there's a yeah. natural psychological move, which is okay. I want this thing now, and yeah. there are ways to do that. But um, the way you described sales, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. And actually, that that wonderful idea, and I I, I love. Um, an old book but it's a great book how to win friends and influence people yeah written by a salesperson and you know you can essentially boil the book no one who (laughs) no one who listens to this needs to read that i'm going to tell you what the book is right the book is understand what somebody wants yeah work out how what you want gets them what they want yeah and if it doesn't then you know like you say there's no point having the conversation but if you can find a way for what you want to get them what they want then they want what you want and at that point it makes complete sense for them to buy from you because buying from you gets them what they want and exactly the way you're yeah. saying and that's a, that's an act of service right? yeah it really is and that's what's missing because you know I, I still think if you or i were to go into a shop tomorrow saying have you got something that can do this i need to do this thing at home and i need this tool or something either the person would go no we haven't got that sorry and that's the end conversation's over which is typically what you'd expect these days or someone's going to say, actually, I don't think we do have that, but would you mind if I suggested something else that I think could do the job for you and I'll show you how it would work? I really think this could actually be a solution for you and I'd like to help you get that thing done. You'd, you'd just, you'd not stop talking about that person for days, <laughs> would you? You'd be delighted when you yeah, went home, I mean, right? You would just be kind of going, oh my God, there's an actual real person somewhere out there in retail. And, but of course, those companies don't do that anymore. They're, I don't know what their business model is because they, they obviously feel they don't need to do any of that. So yeah, yeah. And I mean, we could talk about yeah. this in lots of ways, probably. But I guess hmm. that's the part of the that's the part of living that I enjoy the most. That connecting, yeah, really seeing a person have their dream come true. Which in that moment might just by be buying a hacksaw or something that could be their dream in that moment. But whatever it is, you know, that's that's the bit I love. Yeah. Of life that's the juice of life yeah yeah and you must have done that like i said we said before you know throughout these throughout these roles that you had in your business and the ones you worked in before that and it's interesting that there was a thread of working with people yeah like almost the whole time right yeah and as an author that thread continued because coming back to what you asked me at the beginning i didn't have any intention of writing a book but a hundred people over three years said to me if you write a book, I'll read it. And then more kept coming and saying the same thing. Yeah. Eventually, I thought, oh, my God, the universe is banging me over the head with a shovel saying, write a book, Ray, write a book. It's, it's literally begging me to do it's it. Like, it's, did, like, it's like imagine yeah. you're the, if, if you're the alive person in the yeah. shop and people keep saying it coming into your shop. What, in, yeah. in, in a way, whatever shop you have, if people keep coming yeah. in and saying, have you got a hacksaw? Yeah, yeah like, right. In the end, it makes sense to like have a hacksaw. Exactly. people want the hacksaw right exactly it's like you exactly. can serve all these people who are coming in and, and give them what they want and 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 maybe this bigger thing but maybe this bigger universal questions going on for you as the book is being called out of you but yeah right a hundred people yeah that was a lot you know and it just kept on happening and i thought ah, oh, i'd really like to serve those people and give them what they need because that's part of the juice of life and i love doing that but 
the problem is I don't know how to write a book. I've never, ever written a book. I don't know where you even start or what it would be about, or what genre or anything. But then as I was having that kind of moment of uncertainty, and I was in Chiang Mai at the time, I saw on Facebook that, guess what? Five-day writer's workshop, this bigwig from New York, a publishing business, is coming to Chiang Mai to do this five-day workshop. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I thought, oh, my God, this is, not, this is too much to be a coincidence since I'm in this moment deciding I've got to write a book. I need to be on that program. Well, maybe I do, but I need a confirmation signal that that is the right teacher for me for this moment. And I, I'm big on confirmation signals. I mention it in the book a lot because I learned about those when I flew airplanes as a pilot. You need a confirmation signal when you're navigating. Otherwise, you could be going mm. to the wrong beacon. So I could come back to that if you want. But So I thought, what is the confirmation signal that would tell me this is the right thing? Because she said, it's five days, lots of authors coming, and it's $1,200. And I was a budget traveler. And I didn't have $1,200. So I wrote to her. I said, I really like the sound of your training. Um, I feel I'm on a mission to write a story because people keep asking me, but I've no experience as an author. So I've got two questions. If I did your workshop, would I ruin it for everyone else because I'm a complete beginner and you've got real authors coming that have been published, etc.? And so am I, am I just too low grade to be on the program? And the second thing is, I can't afford $1,200, so can I do it for $500? <laughs> and she wrote back and said, no, it's fine. You'd be okay on the program. And yes, you can do it for $500. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There's your confirmation uh, signal. There's my so, confirmation signal. Let's do it, Rick, because I love this. I, I didn't know this about, about beacons and, and flying until I read it in your book. Okay. Yeah, give us that idea for for people who don't know about it. And then maybe let's talk a little bit about how you use and how you think about that idea as yeah. you use it in your life as well. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, I think we all have this system. It's intuitive and we're probably not fully aware of it. or don't have a name for it, perhaps. But what I'm going to describe is something which will be common known to everyone. So when you've got to make a decision in life, we often go, how do I make the right decision? We, we, we ask our friends, am I doing the right thing? We're looking for a confirmation signal, aren't we, in those conversations? We're looking for someone to go, I can confirm you're doing the right thing and you right. want some authority in that confirmation. So in the world of flying, aviation, how it works, this is I learned to be a pilot before GPS was existing. So in those days, you had a piece of and were instrument. You just, were you just learning to be a pilot for fun? or is this a? Yeah, I learned. My brother yes. is a commercial pilot. Or he retired recently, but we both loved aeroplanes since we were young kids. And uh, he became a pilot as his career. And I, I really wanted to fly airplanes too. So I did it for, for recreation. Yeah. So I got my license in 1990. Okay. Uh, and then I used to fly as much, as often as I could afford, really, because it's quite expensive. Um, and so you're in the aircraft, you, you're in, say you're on the ground in London, you go, I want to go to Brighton. Now in Brighton at Shoreham Airport, there's a piece of instrumentation on the ground. It's quite big physically. It's about the size of a huge trampoline, maybe bigger. And it's got these metal pins that stick up out of the ground. And this is a, called a beacon. It's a radio beacon. And it emits a frequency in all directions for about 50 miles around Shoreham. And if you know what that frequency is, because it's written down in a book somewhere, so you can find it out, you can tune that frequency into the instrument in your cockpit. And a needle in the cockpit will point towards it. So you fly on the needle down to that beacon. That's how you know the right direction to fly, because obviously there's no road signs in the air and things like that. So you need some kind of navigational aid. So that works perfectly. The only 
issue is what if say the beacon at Shoreham is one two seven decimal four, and you tune to one two eight decimal four without knowing it. So now you're flying exactly down the needle accurately, but to a beacon that's in Bournemouth, and you don't know because you chose the you inadvertently chose the wrong frequency. So each beacon has a Morse code identifier. That's a unique piece of sound. And so when you tune to Shoreham, you then do a secondary confirmation. You press a button and you hear in your ear this. And that can only be one Morse signal. And if it's not that signal, you've got the wrong beacon. <laughs> That's your confirmation. So, uh, And so when you are thinking about that in your life, you know, this example yeah. with the writing course. Yeah. Are you just looking for any confirmation signal? Did you? It sounded like then you might have sat down and thought, well, what is the confirmation signal I would need in order to yeah. make the commitment to do this workshop here? That's a great how question. Do you, how do you think about it? That's a great question. In some circumstances, I'll just take any signal. You know, just give me a sign. I'll say that it's the right thing, and then yeah. surely something will show up. And then in others, I'll say I do need a particular confirmation signal, like the example I gave. Yeah. But it varies. It's, it depends on, on, on the situation or event or the timing of it. Yeah. Um, like another story from the book that you might have read, because in the early part, was when I got invited to be the lead actor in a play in Australia. And I, my whole body and energy was going, Ray, this is the thing you really need to do this. You're being called to do this. However, one of my core values is integrity. And I'd given my commitment to about four or five clients uh, that I would do some coaching work with them and i sort of scheduled it and this offer to be in the play was going to kibosh that um and i thought should i say yes to the play or not what's my confirmation signal here okay the confirmation signal is that i go to each one of those people and tell them the story of what's happened and get their full blessing and permission to go off and do the play and still be willing to have me come back and help them afterwards. And that's what I did. I had conversations with every one of them, told them, and they all said, Ray, if I was in your shoes, I would definitely go and do it. Go and do it. And I got the confirmation signal that way. Like, just as a little aside, I love that story. I love the story about the play. And um, <laughs> But why do you think those people all said that to you? Like, what was it about? Because I, I, that seems unusual. Like, it, I, yeah. as I was reading that in the book, I was thinking, this is a high bar. Yeah, you know, it's pretty unlikely. It yeah. feels on an intuitive level that five people who have had a commitment from you to do this, yeah, all set, all feel that. Yeah, and say and give you full permission. I think it's the power of vulnerability is the answer. You know, Brene Brown so beautifully describes this in her work. You know, I made myself completely vulnerable in front of those people. I, I said, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. This could be a really bad decision on my part. They knew all the facts. They knew I was separated. They knew I was under financial pressure to pay my mortgage. They knew I, this play was a special event and it would, you know, be somehow helping me find a way into the next phase of my life. And I, I think they were, I think they saw my vulnerability and just were compassionate yeah, uh, and supportive. I mean, I, I, I'd have to ask each person. I don't know yeah. what their process was. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, uh, Ray. I want to do two things because um, I, I want to come back to this story about the place. Yeah. There's so much in it. But first yeah. of all, um, some people who are listening are probably thinking, "Why were? Why did a hundred people keep asking this guy to write a book about his story?" So on the yeah. on the top level, so that 
people don't have this kind of wandering in the back of their mind. Yeah. What do you think it was about, you know, you could give a high, high level picture of, of, of the story or what was it that people kept hearing from you that made them think there's a book here that I want to read? Well, I think because I got asked a, a lot of questions that are on similar themes, like how come you're traveling for such a long time? Cause I, I got asked this, I've been nonstop traveling for two or three years. Yeah. And I, I think that was uncommon for a lot of people because most travelers take a gap year for three months and or a month or something so yeah. when people met me staying in a hostel or on the road somewhere and i said oh i've been traveling for two or three years really how do you finance that you know how do you pay for that how yeah. come what happened you know so, so then i tell them the story of being a ceo what you were a ceo an award-winning ceo and you left all that behind why why you know yeah yeah and so the, it just started unraveling it. And they were going, oh, my. it's like I just I was just a guy wearing shorts and flip-flops with a backpack. I didn't look anything particular. And when I started saying all these things, I think people were just shocked mostly. <laughs> <laughs> but it is like, yeah, because my, my bit of traveling was, yeah, like you say, it was like three months. And and you, it is the conversation, isn't it, that, that yeah. you have often. Yeah, and often you, you've got all evening at the hostel, nothing else to do. You're having a couple of beers and you're just talking for hours. It's, it's very meaningful, and you, you yeah. know, because everybody's got a reason yeah. to be on the road or a, yeah. a something that started it. Because, exactly. You know, and and often they're yeah, often they're really their reasons about what yeah. really matters in life, in a good yeah. way or a bad way. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, it, it was a good thing that happened to me or a terrible thing that happened to me. And here I am. But there yeah. are all kinds of stories. And there are ones for me that stick, that, you know, the more usual ones were ones a bit like mine, which is, you know, or maybe yeah. even a bit younger than I was kind of like, you know, people in their early 20s on a gap year is kind of probably most common. And then you that was same for me. Later on that kind I was of thing. the old but, guy. And then there are there are ones that stand out, the unusual yeah. ones or the really meaningful ones. And yeah, right. I'm a I was a, an award winning CEO, and now yeah. here I am. I don't know where you are at the time. You know, Wherever in Thailand, on a on a you know in a hostel or a a bus somewhere. And... Yeah, and they'd say, so how did you go from what? How did how did you switch from being an award winning CEO living in London to being here? And I say, well, it's an interesting question because unbelievably, I couldn't work out what to do after all of that calamity. But I went to Australia to do an act of service for a sick friend. And yeah, but, but let's catch it, Ray. The, yeah. the, was it was it um, was it your spiritual guide who'd given the advice? There's an amazing piece of advice. That yeah, you're it was. About. So it was. I've forgotten his name again. I didn't write Robert, it down. Robert. Robert. Yeah. So so because it's such an it's such an interesting take. What had Robert had said something to you that that took you then to Australia? He didn't say it to me at the time. He'd right. said it years before. Yeah, and I remembered it because it was very powerful. He said, "If you ever reach a point of despair." and you're totally stuck, it's bleak, you can't see a way out, one of the things you could do is you just go 100% into service of someone else for a while. You just forget about yourself. And actually, I saw this beautiful quote. I've just written it down today because someone reminded me of this in a LinkedIn post yesterday. Um, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. (laughs) It's by Sid Banks, who channeled the three principles and i'm going to reference that quote a lot i think in the coming months yeah um and so so that was that that just i just remembered it at the moment i didn't know i even did have it in my brain but i remembered it at the the moment when i need it that's why i think the universe is so powerful this universal intelligence because i've found over the years i remember things i've forgotten i knew until the moment they are absolutely essential to me to know them again and then they just they come back. Something triggers it back. And so that's what happened. 
and and so when i was on these telling these stories as a traveler i didn't know what to do i went did this act of service and it resulted in me being the lead actor in a play in a theater in australia they went what you were a lead actor in a play in australia after being a ceo and all that and you went in a play and then you did i mean people were just like flabbergasted to hear this stuff and that's why they said are you going to write a book about this you know that's what that's when it started because none of it none of it made sense <laughs> yeah i was gonna say we can't do unfortunately we can't in the in a, even in a two-hour lengthy conversation like this we can't double click on all the great stories that you've got in your yeah. book but let's do a little bit on this one so yeah because we've so, kind of got into it so you're in australia and you've been helping you've been helping a friend you've been really in yeah. service of her and then you move yeah. on to see another friend in another part of australia yeah. that's right and you're in the theater yeah and, and just, then what happens it's just the interval at the play we were watching i can't remember what it's called and i'm just reading the program to pass the 15 minutes of time and i i noticed my attention is wandering to this box in the corner of one of the pages and I look at it a couple of times and look away and I, I keep wanting to go back to it because it says auditioning for the next play in the theatre is called Out of Order by Ray Cooney, an Irish or English playwright, but very well known in Britain. He wrote Run for Your Wife and other farces like this. And, and it's about an English member of parliament. And I turned to my two friends and just for a joke, completely for a joke, to pass the time, I said, I should be in that play. I've got the perfect British accent. I would be... The, I'd make the member of parliament part, you know, maybe. And I didn't mean anything by it, but they looked at me and they said, well, actually, that's funny you should say that because we know the director of the play. Why don't you go to the audition? You'll be here on Sunday because it was a few days before I left. I said, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> so I laughed. I said, look, there's going to be real trained actors and people with skill going to those. I don't have any training. I've got no skill. I've never acted before. Um, besides i've got to go back and serve these five clients who are waiting for me to come back and i've got a mortgage to pay and now my ex is gone and so i'm doing it all on my own i can't afford it blah blah, blah. i had hundreds of excuses and i was sort of missing the point they said well why don't you just go to the audition for fun don't try and be in the play just go you're going to be here just do it for a laugh you know i said that's not a bad idea i'll do that um i thought hey, i'm into growth experiences i'll try anything so i went to the audition and because of my training in that community i described earlier i only knew if you do something you throw yourself in a hundred percent or nothing it's a hundred percent you give it all so i thought that's what i'm going to do and my brother's married to an actress a professional actress so i kind of knew a bit about that life and how it works and stuff so i get given all these different parts to read in the script and i was doing them pretty well i think and at the end of the evening when the auditions all finished, the director came over to me and said, can I have a word with you, Ray? I thought, oh, God, what have I done? I've, I've lied on my form. I didn't tell him I was living in England or that I was going or anything. I thought there's no point in doing that. He said, so what's your situation then? Are you actually living here? And could you be here for three or four months? And I knew from the questions that I'd, I'd impacted on them and that they were maybe thinking of offering me a part. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm living here. I'm staying at Julie's and I'm, I'm here. I was not going to be there. I thought, I'll just have to tell them when I get home. I couldn't do it. So when I got back to Julie's apartment, I said, I think they're going to offer me a part in the play. But to be honest, if it's, if it's just a small part, like the waiter coming on with the tea or something, and then it says, I'm not coming back. It's got to be one of the two lead roles or I'm not doing it. And they're never going to offer me those. That's not going to happen. And uh, I flew back to Heathrow a couple of days later. And two hours after I got home, the phone rang and it was Julie saying, they want you in the play. I said, what part? She said, they want you to play the part of George Pigden, the main character, the central character, 400 lines in the script. 
He has to do two onstage kisses. He has to move a dead body. He's the comedic center of the whole thing. I thought, oh, my God. And I, I freaked out. She said, I've given you 24 hours breathing space before you need to reply. <laughs> I went to Drury Lane and got the script. I showed it to my sister-in-law, said, this is the play. This is George's character. You know me. Do you think I could blag my way through this? She said, yeah, I think you could. I could show you how to do it. I think you could get away with that. <laughs> so uh, so um, I then did the calls to the clients and told them. And then I had a call with the director. Just a final check before I left to say, um, are you sure that you want to take a risk on me? Because you've got three or 400 paying customers coming into the theater every night are going to expect a you know, professional performance. And I've never acted before, and you know that. And he said, we've got lots of faith in you, Ray. We think you'll be brilliant, and we know you need support, but we're going to help you be ready, and you, you, you'll be able to do it. I said, great. And so I booked a ticket back to Australia and went back two days later. And I was, I was really successful in the play. It was brilliant. It was just a dream. It was, it was fantastic. For three or four months, I lived another person's life because all I had to do was rehearse and get ready and then do the performances every night and stuff like that and it was in the papers i got reviews in the papers i've still got those um and it was just brilliant and i i it was like it was the thing that i needed it was so unlikely and out of character for me to do something like that and it was really the it's what gave me the insight uh that I'll, i think a few people might have seen on on various online things i've done it gave me the insight that i was the ray the businessman was as much a character as George Pigton was. But Ray the businessman was a character I'd authored unconsciously and over a long period of time without realizing that I'd been making all those little choices that accumulated in me being Ray the businessman. And I had forgotten that as well as being the actor in my life, which was Ray the businessman, I was the scriptwriter and the director of the show too. I'd forgotten. And doing the play made me hugely aware of that. It was the big insight that I'd hoped for from going to do the act of service. And when I came back, I just, when I was given that advice, do an act of service and something will break through, something will emerge. I was expecting it to happen on the day I left. <laughs> it's like, I've done my service. Where's my breakthrough? I'm leaving. I don't have one. But it didn't actually come till about three months later. But that was the breakthrough that I needed. Yeah. And it's such a powerful metaphor, right? It's like mm. there's a character that I've subconsciously created. Yeah. I wonder if you could say if you've if you've thought more about why that happened to you and why it happens to others. Like where do these characters yeah. that we sometimes end up living as without realizing come from? Yeah. I, what I, are I, the impacts of them? Yeah, I mean it's great because when I got to Australia to start preparing to be George Pigden, I sat down with the director and said, so how does George speak? What's his voice sound? Like? How does he walk? What clothes does he wear? Just, I've got to become this character, so I need to know everything about him. Now, that process, I think, goes on in our lives from when we're young kids. We hear little conversations between adults we're around going, success in life is this, or getting a good job is the most important thing, or whatever it is. We're just conditioned with all these ideas and beliefs constantly that we're not consciously aware we're absorbing and are going into our files and records and are actually directing our decision making it's just a completely unconscious process and so whatever we grow up thinking 
in my case it was i need to to be happy in life i need to get a good job get a good wife get a house a mortgage and kids and the car parked outside and then everything be sorted that's what i'd been told that's what all the voices accumulated had told me and at no point had i ever questioned that for a second as whether that was the right programming for me or not i just thought i'm just following this to the letter and then discovered as i followed it and, and reached the end point of that process oh my god i'm not i've got that life that i followed but i'm actually really unhappy in it but obviously i've made a mistake somewhere or it's not right it's, it's not what's true for me it's not who i am it's not really authentically me mm. and i felt at that point trapped because all i'd prepared myself for in life was to be in that role all i knew was being the head of a business like that you know i didn't know it to how to do anything else and now I was trapped doing it yeah. as much as it was producing fantastic financial life, you know, but wasn't, I wasn't happy doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so much in there, isn't that? Yeah. It reminds me that, and, and, you know, coaches will have seen this, you know, with clients sometimes, sometimes it's a remarkably, you can see that you can see that we're all actors playing characters because you can yeah. prompt a shift in character. Yeah. <laughs> the character that somebody's playing relatively like we can do that for us in some ways in a relative short amount of time you know yeah, you can yeah. imagine we, we're capable of imagining the other character you know if i was already really confident what would i do here you know if yeah. if i was my friend who loved public speaking how would i approach this situation you know you can do those yeah. kind of mental leaps into a different character but, but but it also makes me think a little bit that you know it, <laughs> i had this thought having thought a bit about about that that George Pigden insight ahead of the call, you know, that it's not, it's almost like it's not a terrible idea as a as a child to listen to the things that adults say make for success and happiness. Like mm. you don't know much about the world. And no. it's it's not actually a like it's a pretty smart thing to do. Like if I don't know much about the world, what are who are the kind of people that yeah. seem wise in the world? And I what do they say makes you happy? And then the problem is that the world's a bit more complex than that. Yeah, and it's and also the goalposts were moved since our parents gave us right. that advice yeah, as well. Yeah. So it's you know, so they're giving advice that's already sort of out of date yeah. when they're giving it. Yeah. Because yeah. new technologies, new ways of working, new ways of thinking, new models for everything, the internet, blah, blah, blah. Of course their advice is not completely gonna fit because yeah. that, that's not the world they got theirs in. Yeah. Yeah. Ray, Ray, tell me about the number 26,902. Yeah, that um, was the number of days that my dad lived. <laughs> 26,902. Um, yeah. and, and I don't know why, but when I went to his funeral, he was 73. Because he I, died actually, in the middle of this period, right? As, as, yeah, as, as things as, were changing and your life was coming absolutely. open. Charlotte told me she wanted to leave. We separated. And, and that was the time my dad was very ill in hospital and fighting for his life. And it was a tough time for me because I didn't have the loving support of Charlotte. You know, she couldn't not, she didn't do a bad thing. It just, she was obviously in her own process. And so I was sort of navigating that potential departure of my dad on my own it, at a time where my life was already wrecked from losing my life, you know, and the, and the fall of the company with it. So it was a really challenging time for me, but um, I don't know why at his funeral, I, I couldn't think of anything else rather than how long his life had been in days. Just, I don't know, no idea why that came into my thinking. So I got home after the funeral and I 
worked it out and I wrote it down on a piece of paper and stuck it on the wall in my kitchen. I just kept looking at it without knowing why I was looking at it. But I was thinking mainly that's not a really long period of time, 26,900 days. That's really short. A life It's a very short thing. I think it was because I was going, what should I do with the rest of my life? That had been my question up to that moment. Mm. Now that it's all wrecked, what should I do with the rest of it? How do I, how do I shape the rest of my life? But I hadn't gone, well, how long exactly is the rest of my life? So that was probably the stepping stone it gave me. I thought, how many days have I got and how many days have I used up? So I did some research on the internet. The government and actuaries track this information very, very accurately with models because it's going to cost them money to pay pensions. So they're very, very aware. And there's a guy actually came across the other day whose, whose reputation in the world is he can most accurately predict based on five years of health data, the month and year in which a person's going to die. And he's known for that. Well, that's a bit terrifying. Can you go, yeah. to, can you go to his website and put stuff in? No, no, you need, to, name, you, need to, you need to give the health. You need to get yeah, the but you need five, with five years of yeah. data of the type that he described, he can, he's, he's, he's been doing it for years for all the insurance companies. He can predict the month and year a person's going to die. And, they're, and they're very accurate predictions. So I, I, I got this data in the UK, the average age of mortality for men is 80. So that's 29,200 days. Men, I'm sorry to say this, you've got 29,200 days most likely. Some of you will live longer than that. Some of you will live less than that. But average, it's 29,200 days. Uh, women, it's a bit lot more. I think they have 82 for women, so they've got a couple of years extra. And that meant for me in that moment, I had about 12,500 days of my life left as I sat and worked all these numbers out. So my question subtly changed when I had that data. Literally, data does help with the questions because I went, not what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. What am I going to do in the next 12,500 days? And what's most important for me? Because I could do a lot of different things. So for example, is, for, is building my CV and getting more badges and medals on my CV important? Do I need to do anything of those 12,500 days and that? No way. It wasn't even on the list. What was on the list were things like, I want to see parts of the world I'm not going to see unless I go soon. Uh, I, want to, I want to broaden my mind. I want to find out about the world. I want to actually feel, I felt like I'd lived on a postage stamp on this massive planet my whole life. And I just had no idea what, what, what was going on on the world I was a member of. I just, I just needed to have this sense that I'd kind of been out there somehow. I didn't know why or how that would look, but I knew I had to go out, out away and and explore because I, I now know that one of my core values is exploration. I didn't know it at the time, but I've been able to articulate that. And so I, and so the journey started to take shape. I thought, well, if I've got 12,500 days left, the first thing we're going to do is go out into the world and gather some new information about what's going on in the world and then use that to make some new decisions about how to use this time. And that's where it led me. Mm. And so it's like, uh, well, I should say, I don't know if you can see this, actually. Let me see what you can see. Again, if people are watching on video, they might not see it. This thing here, uh, this thing. Yeah, um, I can only see the frame. I can't see It's a frame with, um, and it's, it's made by Wait But Why, which is uh, okay. a blog of a guy called Tim Urban. And okay. it's got one square for every week of life, if right. you live to your 90. Like the square oh, 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 yeah. No, I've seen that, I think. I used that in one of my presentations. Yeah, it's 52 by... 
yeah uh 89 so it's like little dots in exactly rows. right and you can yeah i've used that before i've seen you, that. Yeah. you can do whatever you like with it but it's uh yeah. it's the same reminder really just weeks yeah. instead of days of and you, you know it's funny people always ask what this is and then i ask them how old they are and when their birthday is and we try and find their square yeah right, right. On, the, on the on the on the picture and yeah you know i look at where mine is and you know you just get a picture more yeah. a, cl- a much more clear picture of what is life exactly like you say of, yeah of what and it, it partly came i think for Tim Urban, we could probably put a link to this in the in the show notes wherever people are listening as well. It, my, I, my memory is that I got this as a my mum got me this as a present after I'd shared a blog of Tim Urban's. Right. I think it was about seeing his parents, so it has a parental connection as well, a oh, bit like okay. your son. You know, yeah. he realised, well, okay, if I look at my life as this number of weeks, yeah, how much of my time, the time that I spend with my parents, has already passed? And actually, for almost all of us, you know, after you're eighteen or 16 whenever you leave home like almost all of it is in that period right yeah and, and then if we're lucky we if we if we want to be spending time with our parents if we're lucky we have consistent times after that but right. in a way no no number of christmases or weekends away will match yeah. that first you know 10 years yeah let alone the, the following six and then maybe yeah. a few more after that if you're like me and you have like life crises and you end up back at home at different points right. a bit more but you know it it yeah that's that's where it came from and i guess you know, I wanted to share that because you know I think it is it's another person looking at that the scale of life and thinking about yeah. using that to think about what's meaningful. What's meaningful? Yeah. yeah. Is that you know what for you? Because some people thinking about some people see this thing on my wall. You know, people aren't in this office that that often, but sometimes people see this thing on my wall and they're like, "Sorry, what is this?" Yeah. Have, right. You know, have you have an excellent conversation with an electrician about it? You know, but yeah. some people find the idea of considering our mortality quite strange but i wonder for you why is it important to do that what, what you know either generally or for you and maybe we've already said it and it's just emphasizing something what made yeah, it important well, to do that in that moment i wasn't even sure why it was important it was just i was following my intuition and for me i i think what woke up in me as a result of the collapse of the old life was a sign that kind of access to a sort of inner voice that i'd lost connection with and it was just speaking to me here and there quietly yeah, there's a really there's a really nice bit like what yeah. stood out for me, and I was going to ask you whether it had always been there, and and what what makes there's a bit where you're, you're sitting at the at the kitchen table in the aftermath yeah. of the divorce, and yeah. the inner voice says, I, mean, I think I wrote it down because it's so so powerful. It said, "It's time to get out of the life you've created. You're yeah. done with it. It's time for something yeah. new." Correct. And so it was speaking to me, and I and it was the and I was it was a sort of bittersweet thing because. I was unhappy before this phase because I was in a life that wasn't exactly fitting for me and I'd lost connection with that inner voice. Now I'd sort of lost the physicality of the form of my life I'd lost, but the voice was coming back. So it was the it was the tragedy of losing the love of my wife and that life and all those things, but the joy of finding that voice again. And these two things were literally balancing out each other and it was hard to know what was whether I should be happy or not in those yeah. moments, because yeah. it was a sort of such a weird mixture. And I mean, maybe it's, it's, you know, the answer is probably always both, but do you think that the, do you think that it was letting go, like losing track of the voice that had led to the life that was somehow yeah. off track or had the life somehow got in the way of hearing the voice? Yeah. I think it's what happens to businesses, to people, to sports teams. When you start obsessing on the measures or the score marks that you're using, as your reference points for your own inner success 
you you shift your attention away from what's truly in you the feeling of it to what the measure is and then you focus okay i'm just going to focus on the measure so getting more clients increasing the revenue getting bigger profits every year you, i just became focused on that stuff and i forgot that in what 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 got me to want to do all that was the joy of personal growth and the joy of creating a community and i forgot that stuff just literally forgot because my attention shifted not in a good way to getting financial results why do you think like i would hazard to guess you're not the only person in the world that yeah. that, that literal thing has happened to i mean maybe you yeah. you know it was quite it's quite stark because you had such a focus on yeah making things human yeah and it slipped away from that but why do you think that happens so much the the shift to you know i mean you talk about minimalism in in the yeah. book you talk about materialism what you know what is it that that in the in i don't know modern britain that leads to that happening yeah well i, I it's a great question i don't know there'll be thousands of different answers from it, but my answer to it and how it's come to me how i sort of feel it now is that what i learned through the the teachings i received in the monasteries when i was in thailand the buddhist monasteries is i learned about the cycle of craving that all human beings are in, it have we have it's just not known to us you know you you sort of feel a gap in your happiness and emptiness inside yourself. And so you crave something that you believe is going to fill that gap, whether it's a new job or a new partner or more money or whatever, it holiday, you know, different things at different times. But we, we just want things and crave things we think is going to make us feel whole. So even if we get that thing and we feel whole for a few minutes or a few days, it's going to wear off. It's a temporary cessation, as they call it in Buddhism. And then the clinging starts because you don't want to let go of the happiness you've had for a brief moment. And so the clinging then leads to further craving and wanting to fill the hole again. And you're just, we're just literally trapped, all Westerners, all people in the Western mindset are trapped in that cycle. We just don't know it, but that's how it is. And of course, businesses that produce products play on that. They know that too. They know this stuff. And they, they they stoke the flames of your desires because it's more money for them. You think, oh, if I just get a new Rolex, I'm going to be really happy forever. <laughs> of course, you get the Rolex, you are happy for a minute or two. But yeah, and then and then it's interesting, isn't it? Because then then you've got like the newer businesses. The the thing is probably less Rolexes and more. If I just watch another episode of this thing, yeah. then I can hold on to yeah. that feeling. And there's an endless supply of these things, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever it is. And I think there's been a big shift in recent years because when I was researching for my book, when I was writing it, I came across a book called Stuffocation by James Wallman, which is an excellent read. And he talks about the trend, I think, in the younger generations than me, the millennials and other generations that are 20s and stuff. He said, my generation grew up with values based around materialism. You were taught by your folks. What you own is who you what is who denote what denotes your status in society, what you own and accumulate. And there's some truth in that, you know, in our society. But he said younger people, they don't, they're not interested in that. They want to know what experiences are available. They want experiences, life experiences. And so he said there's been this shift from materialism to experientialism that he calls it in the book. And I saw a lot of truth in that because I was backpacking around with a lot of these young kids and talking to them and i could feel that and sense that in the way they were speaking they really weren't interested in emulating their parents model of accumulating loads of stuff that they didn't want 
And what, what's going to be interesting, I guess, is to find out, you know, and, and it's interesting is maybe some people won't like this, but to me, what's going to be interesting is to find out what's the shadow of yeah. experientialism, Yeah. right? Like what, what do you lose if you go too far down that, which undoubtedly many people yeah. will are have, maybe that's Netflix. That's the problem with it, that it's like, it's an yeah. experience, but it's like, you actually yeah. can just lose yourself for, you know, in some, some ways a wonderful six hours. I can't anymore because I've got a two-year-old, but you know, you know, when you don't, if you don't have something like that to distract you, great mindfulness bell that she is, right. um, you know, like you can lose yourself in, yeah. in those things. One of my friends, when he was traveling said, that watching the TV show 24 was like time traveling. You know, if you get on a coach across South America yes. and, you know, you, you just get into 24 and then 19 hours later, you arrive on the other side of Chile and, um, you, you know, you, you barely you noticed wanna, it. You, yeah, you, exactly. don't, you, don't, you don't even want to get off the coach because you're halfway through an episode. You don't want to get right, off. Exactly. Exactly. So, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's so, there's so much kind of in there. Yeah. A lot. I don't know how we got onto this, but it's. A, I love so it. Right? I think it's we started of, talking about the days. You know, didn't we? So it's one of my favorite things about this show is that it doesn't yeah. matter how we got here because it's, it's, exactly. it's interesting to us and to be to be, yeah. to be playing here. I guess to as in this moment of like, ooh, why are we here? And thinking about time traveling with twenty four and and that kind of thing. If I want to just get for, for people who are listening, because we're not going to cover everything that's in the book. And that's good because this is part of how we sell the book, right? We just talk about some interesting things in it and leave people wanting more. But um, to give give us a picture, you know, 20 something countries, I think, is it more than that now? Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, you moved around, there's, there's, there's new places that you went, there's new experiences you had, there's landmarks that you saw, people you met. Yeah. Um, marathons you've ran, all kinds of things in the story. Yeah. yeah. So I just to give people some basic facts about me, I didn't have kids when I was married. Mm. And so that enabled me to look at things quite creatively and go, I, you know, I didn't, I had the, op, the opportunity to, to take an experiment to untie myself from the normal ties of life. And let's just catch it. Sorry for people who are completionists. There's the life without a tie. Yeah. Play on words, right? Yeah. No, I mean, no the original, tie anymore. And yes, I, I mean, it's a bit dated because I came from the era where we did wear ties in business. But um, originally, the idea for life without a tie was me removing the necktie from the business suit. But it also, I realized that the four ties that tie all of us to our lives, I characterize as uh, the four ties that is our spouse or partner, the home that we actually live in our careers and the community of friends and family. Those are the four corners of our tent that pick yeah, our lives down. It's a really nice model. Like I, yeah. hearing you say it again now, I've read it in the book, hearing you say it again, you know, it makes me think of the time when I took some six months off and did some traveling and did various other things. And it was a time, yeah. all that is similar to yours, yeah. will be at a slightly different stage of life, but a time when a bunch of those ties were, a couple of ties were severed. Yeah. And another one was uncertain enough that I was a bit like you with work was happy to leave it behind. Like yeah. it wasn't a painful thing to sever that tie. Right. And so there's the, suddenly there's an opportunity to do this kind of adventure. Now, what I love about, yeah. um, there's a really nice forward to the book by Bernadette Russell. And she says this great yeah. thing about how she too set out in despair. Um, and But she stayed in her own neighborhood to go on her journey. And I think right. that's a really nice way of thinking about what people can take from a book like this because you know of course you say a really great thing which i completely agree with that for the people that are too afraid want to do something even a tiny version of what you did 
and I hope they take from this conversation, from anything they read about you, the some of the courage to to make those leaps to do them. But it doesn't have to be for those who you know do have children or are caring responsibilities or whatever. It doesn't have to be a leap that involves many many countries around the world. No, it doesn't have to involve any because I I in my coaching work I see people take huge courage to admit to themselves. I'm in a job which is killing me. I don't get any energy from it. I'm not alive. I'm so outside of my element when I'm doing this job that it's literally killing me. And I need to admit that and find a different job that puts me in my element. That is a, that's as big a change on the scale as me going off and doing some traveling and coming back. That's the same. It's, it's not different. It's just different circumstances, but energetically, it's got the same power. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. really not the message that I have for people having done the journey, analyzed it, reflected on it, written the book about it is you have to make a shift in how you think and perceive the world in your life. That's what's re- really what it comes down to is, is changing your way of thinking. That's the most critical thing. But it's, in- it's also interesting, isn't it? Because each of those, you know, I'm just, I don't know if this is what you were saying and I, cause I think I interrupted you, yeah. but, um, each of those four ties, yeah. they are both a reason to not, that makes it more difficult to go on a big trip around the world. Yeah. But they are also like a connection to the kind of person we are, aren't they? They they can be, they can hold us. And we have to be, yeah. I, think, I think we have to be really careful about this with the people that we love, right? Yes. Be really careful that we're not holding them into an identity that isn't, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this as though this is the thing I thought about loads. This is the thing yeah. I'm thinking in this moment, Ray. We have right. to be really careful with the people we love that we aren't accidentally holding them yeah. into a role that yeah. is an old role or is tying them or is, is a role. Yes. You know, and everyone who's gone home to their parents' house, like ever, has probably felt that you get sucked a little bit into that role. It's quite hard yeah, to we've be. All, we've got a cat. We're all playing characters in those little cameos. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, we yeah. are. Lo- I mean, yeah, the idea of the ties. Yeah, it's 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 a subtle thing. It's not. There's no. It's, you can't probably cover it all in a conversation because it's so subtle and so dependent on a, on each person's own life. But it constantly comes up in my coaching work in one form or another. This is a regular thing where I, you know, would say to a person who wants to make a shift, I might say, "Do you have the support of your partner to make that shift?" And I say, "Oh no, they really think it's a shit idea that I do that." And you know, this is obviously you know one of the reasons it's not happening. Yeah, and and a great coaching question for anyone listening, right? Is when people are resisting, say they want to do something but aren't doing it. It's like, well, what are the yeah. ties? Yeah, what are the things that are tying you to how things are right now? Yeah, and often, whatever people say, often it's just because they think or believe a certain thing. It's not necessarily an actual, real, tangible. Like if there's a law passed tomorrow that says you can't go do that if you know because now there's a law saying you can't that's, yeah. that's different but yeah but mostly it's not that it's at not, all no it's not that at all and uh, I, it's funny actually just as we're speaking um again we can put a link in for this i a podcast i was on i was a guest on has just come out where i was coached right like i was a client it was a it's a coaching ah, session right. to the podcast and one of the things in it is quite interesting it's basically a and i and i know what happened because i did it it's like i had this sense that there was a really strong thing i had this really strong story in that conversation that about yeah. money and what i needed to create and what my essentially what my speech marks what my wife needed me to create 
Right. And I, during the conversation, I caught that that was most probably mostly story. And then I was able to confirm that it was mostly story. It's not completely story, right? Of course, I have to contribute. But but the pressure I was putting on myself, tying myself to certain ways forward, felt pretty, felt mu- was much stronger than the actual thing that the person I care about. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think it's a really it's a really interesting way to think about all of this. Ray, I want to come in a minute. You started to bring it back in, and it, it feels important to come come to coaching again um, in this conversation. But tell me, you're back in the UK now, right? And I came and f- back in 2019 to you know, like in the in the in the way that Joseph Campbell talks about the hero's journey, which is the arc of every story that we ever read. Yeah. Um, I'd and Bernadette Russell summed it up beautifully in the forge. She said, Ray brought back the jewels up right. to, the, to the village. I knew when I returned to the UK, it was time to get the story down on paper and share it with everyone because you come back to your former life with this new insight. And the most valuable thing is to then share that with everyone in the community so that they can use the insight you've gained. So that's why I came back in 2019. I spent two years really focused on getting the book finished, which was published about three months ago. Yeah. Uh, and w- w- what was it that, so that was probably, how how long were you traveling? I mean, I know this, this, there, were, there would have been times back in here and all kinds yeah. of things in there, but. I left in November, 2005 yeah. for a six month sabbatical, but I returned, finally returned in September of 2019. So do, do you think it is a final return? Or will you be back on the oh, road? That's a great question. Yeah. Everyone asked me that. And I have to say, I don't know. But knowing, I I, I think I've got another expedition at least in me. Yeah, at least. There's more more adventure. And- yeah. And, and also, I, I feel like um, I'm very open to universal guidance. And I, I sort of feel a sense that I'm going to be guided to share more about this story in other parts of the world and be invited to speak about it. So I will travel for that reason as well. Yeah. And yeah. what was the universal guidance that brought you back to the Yeah, was, well, at first it was the end of a relationship that I'd been in for five years with a Polish woman. Um I met her in Thailand in two thousand fourteen and uh we connected really well and and, and it's cut a long story short, you can read more in the book, but I, I moved to Warsaw in twenty sixteen to live with her, you know to move into a home with her and make our relationship work i had i had concerns and considerations about it because when i was when we met i was 54 and she was 32 and that was a huge generational gap and i i don't i know it's not reason not to be in a relationship but i felt i said to her i think you're a bit mad you know want to be in a relationship with me because you want to have kids and i probably don't and blah 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 no i don't want to have kids she said as as she was expected to say, I said, I think you're going to change your mind. And inevitably she did, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and it wasn't, that wasn't the issue really. And it was just that there wasn't a strong enough relationship between us that would have made having kids work. I was quite open to that possibility, but it just didn't feel right. So, um, so that relationship ended. And then I was in Warsaw in Poland thinking, what am I doing here now? My purpose of being here is over. And I'm very purpose-led, you know, so people often say, where are you going to live? I say, well, I'll know that when I know what the purpose is that I'm doing now. I'll find a place that's conducive to that purpose and will support me in that. And that's where I'll live, probably. So uh, so that's the, that's. I decided to come back to the UK because my inner voice kept saying, go back, Ray. I know this is all a bit uncertain, but you need to go back to England and finish the book. 
That's mm. all I want you to do. Just go and get the book written. Forget about everything else. Just get that out there. Yeah. And so nice. that's what I did. Nice. Yeah. And I'm going to come to coaching in a sec, listeners, if you're listening and you keep hearing me say that and we don't do it. But, you know, you talk about that relationship there and the relationships, various relationships, including the divorce, but also other ones along the way are kind of yeah. real presences in the book. And yeah. throughout it, you're talking and writing about insights in in those intimate relationships yeah. and doing work to make them, you know, I don't know what it would be, make, in, invite more success or, or the right energy in them. And yeah. I wonder, it's quite a bold, first of all, it's quite a bold thing to write about those things and, yeah. and, and um, quite unusual to read about them. And so mm. valuable, I think for people. Um, yeah. Are there particular insights or reflections that, that you have on relationships that that i don't know what, what's the question you know that 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 really stand out for you having especially having done the reflection to to then write about those yeah those i can i can mostly share what i learned to improve my, in my own life and that, so it's not necessarily insight that's universally applicable but huh. so for example one of the big things that shifted for me because i i started the journey with a woman called annie who i'd met in london and that relationship was on for about an eight a, a year and a half when we started and then we broke up we did get back together again but we broke up at that point because what i saw in that relationship partly because she gave me feedback about it and suggested i read a book called undefended love she gave me this book and said right i think you need to read this and i read this book and it was all about how men in particular armor themselves up and become totally invulnerable to, to feedback and any kind of criticism, et cetera. Uh, and how having uh, an open heart could lead to a lot more connection and fulfillment and satisfaction in relationships. And when I read the book, I had this feeling of embarrassment because I, every page I read, I thought, oh, God, that's me. That's what I do. That's exactly where I'm at. I'm so stuck. I'm so defended. I'm so armored up. I'm so not open. Oh, it was horrible just reading it because I could see myself reflected in the pages. But it was enough to make me want to confront that part of myself, let's say, and do something about it. Because I thought, Anne is the first serious relationship I've had since I was married. And I'm just repeating the same pattern here. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that. I don't want to live my life. I've got 11,500 days or whatever it is. I don't want to live those days as that character. I need to make a character shift here. So I found the two women that wrote the book. I researched them online. I did this, but I had a Christmas on my own in Kathmandu, Nepal, where everyone had gone, and I was just in a room for a week on my own. So I did this research and found that they were running a workshop in San Francisco about how to tackle these issues and how to change. And uh, I thought, wow, I'm in Kathmandu to San Francisco. It's going to cost me a fortune for a two-day workshop. Can I justify spending all that money? I thought, oh, no, I probably can't. And I thought, oh, no, hang on a minute. My brother works for British Airways. I'll call him. And I'll, get, I'll see if this is a confirmation signal I'm meant to be on the workshop. I said, my brother's called Paul. I said, Paul, um, I'm reading about this workshop in San Francisco in about five months' time. Can you look up? on the company system how much the hotline tickets are for staff family members 
for a flight to San Francisco and back to London. Let's say do it from London. Um, I'm just curious. I think it's going to be really expensive. How much is it? And he looked at it. He said, well, it's not bad. He said, I can get you there and back for like 60 pounds plus taxes. <laughs> I said, you're kidding. He said, no, that's that's because it's a low low volume season and the price is good. I said, okay, get me a ticket. I'm going to book myself on that workshop. <laughs> that was my confirmation signal. It's only going to cost me 60 pounds plus a few hours and days of travel, but I'm going. And I went to San Francisco and did that workshop, and I loved it. And it really started the process of me. I'm examining, exploring, and I'm doing some of that armor. And, but it wasn't enough, obviously, two days. And I said to the two women, what can I do to keep my journey of growth around this going? Because everyone here is just going to keep coming back for the weekends with you, and they live here. But I live in Asia. I can't come back. And they said, well, let's think about that. We'll get back to you. And they came back to me about a week or so later. They said, the best thing we could advise you to do, Ray, is we think you should do something called the Hoffman process. And weirdly, that wasn't the first time I'd been given that advice. It was the second time. And I wrote about that in the book. And eventually, I did the Hoffman process. Um, and that helped me really unravel that those patterns. I've been a different version of me ever since, really. Mm. And I think, is this right that I, you wrote this in the book, actually, so I know yeah. that it's right, but I, I, I think I thought it before. Yeah. You're not allowed to tell us what happens in the Hoffman process, right? That's, that's, that's Yeah, I mean, the Hoffman process, it's extremely effective, partly because there's a surprise element in it. It's an eight-day journey. It's an eight-day intensive. You're, you're in one place. You don't go outside, no phones, computers, anything. And so it's an eight-day intensive, and it works because you don't, don't know what's coming. So none of us spoil it for anyone going into the next. But we can share something about it. And when I wrote about my experience of the Hoffman process, which I did at great length and the vision that came out of it, when I showed that to the Hoffman Institute, primarily to check I wasn't stepping on their toes legally and I wasn't saying anything I'd be sued for, I checked everything like that in the book. They, they said, we're really glad that you've shown us this because we're very happy with what you're in. But not only that, we think it's probably a really one of the best accounts that anyone who's been through it has ever written. And so they published an article in their in their magazine to 10,000 you know, members with my account of the process so that everyone could read it. Mm. And so they were really thrilled. And a couple of their uh, members came to the to the book launch in London uh, as well to give their support to me. So it was brilliant. Amazing. And, and we should say as well, you know, it's like, in a way, that's not surprising to me because alongside this, you've been practicing storytelling. Like, obviously, yeah. every time you met somebody new yeah, <laughs> on right. the road, you were practicing, but also you've been writing yeah. blogs over many years during that, this time. That, that to honor my guiding principle of connection. I thought yeah. the best way I can stay connected with the world is to write a blog, sharing what I'm learning and insights I'm having at every stage. Yeah. So I started doing that, you know, religiously. And it's lovely. We can put a link to some of that in the in the show notes yeah. and, and people can dive into different parts of the journey. And so, yeah, it's no surprise to me, given all that, um, that that the book reads beautifully. And like, you know, I, like I, I said to you, I think I said this before we actually started speaking for guests, for, for, for people listening. Um, you know, it's like it, it's it's like I, I kept wanting to read more. Right. It's a page okay. thing. It's like what's happening here and what's going to happen next for Ray, especially. Yeah, especially those to have the inside from somebody who's so interested and so aware of the processes of growth and change to be talking about that from the inside is a really, 
really beautiful thing to read. You know, it's one of the dreams I had. You know, I, I love the story of Gandhi at the beginning. You know, I, I won't spoil it for anyone who's not read the book. It's a great story that people yeah, should look. Yeah, people can, you get super, instant payoff in the book by yeah. getting that story on like page six or something. Page one. It's page one. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and it frames the book nicely because, you know, for me, when people say to me, what, what's your definition of being a leader, Ray? I, I change it sometimes, but often I'll say, it's a, for me, it's always about going first and being yeah, being the example, living it, being just doing whatever it is you're going to say in words, but doing it yourself. And so I thought, what a great opportunity I've got to just live my life how I feel is the best way I can show up in the world and then share the story of that and what happened to me as a result and where that took me according to the values I've got, uh, the beliefs I hold and those things, which I had to examine deeply in order to know how to speak about it. So, so I, so I'm really. It, it's always been something I've loved, you know. To be, to be leading by example is my joy in life, mm-hmm. and I as the best kind of leadership, I think, because you know we've all worked for people who say one thing and do completely the opposite, and we know how horrid that is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, Ray, let's do the thing that I keep meaning to do, and then getting distracted yeah, from, which is coaching. So, when did you? Yeah, when? How did you come back to? coaching on this journey for some of it right you were budgeting frugally and not working and then for some of it you were working and how how did that come back and 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 why do you think it came back that particular part yes a great question so i can answer that uh in a couple of steps so 2005 i left and i'd say for the first three years i was purely fascinated with my life as a tourist, you know, just visiting places, learning the history, seeing what was going on. For two or three years, that was really already a full life, just being a tourist. And then I noticed... Oh, as let, I was, let's just catch it, yeah. right? Like, you did that partly from being like a budget backpacker, yeah. right? Like really yeah. getting the daily expenditure down and partly oh, from some money you had be- from before that. Is that right? Yeah, I was living on sort of 20 or 25 pounds a day, Fantastic. you know, yeah. and did that for two or three years. And... And and because that's not very much when you add it all up over a year, I had enough saved from my life in London and being a businessman that I didn't need to earn an income to cover those expenditures. I had enough already saved. Yeah. And um, and and it was two thousand five. Now in two thousand and eight, a couple of things happened that were crosshairs. One is I'd seen a couple of things on my travels that really touched me deeply at the heart level, and I and I'd been, I could see that I was ruminating on them in the back of my mind about how I could engage with those things, help support those things, et cetera. But in a very kind of distant way, I had been thinking about it, not in a serious way, but one was an elephant sanctuary in the north of Thailand where they were rescuing elephants and putting them back into the wild and giving them a, a loving, natural home. And a lady called Lek Chalet had really inspired me. She She's an amazing, incredible woman. And She'd really made an impression on me and what they were doing. And they were doing it on a shoestring. And I thought, what could they do with more money? And then another one was an orphanage in Nepal where I'd gone and set up a picnic for 60 children at the orphanage on the, on the invitation of a friend who'd volunteered there. She said, you must go there if you're in Nepal. And I did this picnic and I just saw these kids light up. And it was one of the best days of my life up to that point. I thought, what could we do if we had a bit more money you know, for these kids? You know, what could we do? And I started thinking about that, but didn't do anything further. So that was 2008. And at the same time, the global financial crisis triggered off in Europe. 
And suddenly the money I had saved was vulnerable, you know, to loss, depreciation, theft, confiscation, all sorts of bank collapse, you know. So, so all of that was going on at the same time. And so I had to get some of the savings I had sort of into a more safe place and think about that. And I could see it also that triggered the collapse of interest rates on savings because the little amount I had invested was enough to cover some of the costs of my travel. But it was going to dry up. I could see that coming. So I thought, in a couple of years, I'm going to need to really seriously start building a, an income that I used to have before. Um, and so I was aware of all those points. How can I be doing this support? How can I create money in the future? And so I started to pay attention to people I met on the travel who were connected somehow with the business world. Say, oh, what, what's your business then? What do you do? You know, just starting to see where how where i where i could hook myself to and find out about and i came across things like yeah oh, I, we 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 do this licensed program that you can facilitate anywhere once you've been accredited so i think i'd look into that and explore it and say well that costs five thousand pounds to get all the accreditations and then i'd have to do a certain amount of work to recover that no that's not feeling right no i don't want to do that yet next thing and i just started looking at lots of different different things without making any decision or commitment. And in the meantime, I decided to commit to raising some funds for these causes. So I started I started my own online foundation. I, I called it the Calling All Angels Foundation, which was named after a movie I'd seen. And uh, it was just me. And I thought, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tap my network around the world of business contacts to get them to donate money. What would, they, what would make them donate? What could I do? While I was pondering that question, a guy called Matt Campbell, I met him randomly in my travels from England. And he told, I said, what do you do when you're not working? He said, I'm a runner. I've run six marathons. I said, really? So tell, tell me about running marathons. <laughs> so he did. And I, I noticed the, the tingling of energy in my body when he was talking to me about that. I started noticing a lot more things like that. You know, when someone spoke about certain things. They kind of trigger the kind of ooh, ooh, like a, a sort of desire in me. And I noticed when that happened. And so I said, Do you think I could run a marathon? He said, Why why are you asking? I said, Because I'm trying to think of something I can do to raise money for these things. He looked at me and he said, Well, you look quite fit. He said, Have you ever run before? I said, No, never. I've not run, you know, even hundred meters. He said, Well, look, I'll tell you what. Um, if you stay here for six months, I'll train you to run a marathon. If you do everything I say, you'll be ready. I said, Okay, it's a deal. I'll do that. So I now had a coach who was going to train me to run a marathon, a purpose and a mission to do something good for somebody, which I didn't have as a tourist. And now I thought, wow, this is, this is a new phase of this journey. I'm now a man on a mission. I'm going to train to run a marathon. I'm going to spend my nights and weekends raising money. And I'm going to have this big pot of money. I'm going to run a marathon. And Matt said, what run marathon do you want to run? And I'd been to New York a couple of years before, and I'd watched the end of the New York Marathon. And I, and I thought, I want to run the New York Marathon. That's the best one in the world. So Matt said, what are you going to apply for that? I said, well, it's, I don't think I'll get a place. It's a ballot. He said, well, just give it a go, see what happens. So I, I entered the ballot. I got a place the first, first time. I knew that was a confirmation signal that it was the right <laughs> one because I got a place first time, no fuss. And, uh, and so I then ran the New York Marathon in 2009 in November, 1st of November raised $15,000, took the money back to Nepal and to the Elephant Sanctuary, deployed it, stayed there to get everything done, 
that project took me 18 months, literally full time, as if um, it was a like a full time job. But it, it 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 gave me the experience of being engaged again with something which had targets and results and like my business used to, but it obviously felt different. But it was different from being a tourist. I was now working and not being paid a penny, but actually with a schedule and with people to call and stuff like that. And I noticed I really liked it. I really loved it. I really loved that sense of being purpose-led and driven. I hadn't, I'd been okay for three years not having that because it was nice to have a rest and a change. And that had altered my mindset a lot, that break. Just having no stimulus of any business type stuff had really changed how I thought about things in a good way. So when I came back to doing something meaningful, it was felt different. It felt new, novel, energized. It felt different. And I was doing it for purpose I loved. And so I, when that was over, I felt flat. You know, I handed all the money out. I'd done the marathon. What's now? You know, I thought, you know, I'm really ready to re-engage with people in the business world because that felt so different from my business life, but it was more like it. I wonder how I'd feel coaching people in the business world. How different would I be? Because I'm a different person myself. How would that feel? So I thought, I'm going to find a team I can align with to do some business coaching. <laughs> Let's call in the universal guidance system. Let's set an intention. And this is, this is one of the best stories in the book for how this system works. Because I literally, I mean, literally had no idea how I was going to do it. I didn't know a single business contact in the whole of Asia. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know the name of even one company, apart from the global ones, of course. So I went onto LinkedIn, which I was a member of, and I just typed in the words Coaching Asia, and up came a load of people, profiles. I didn't know any of them. I sort of saw that most of them were coaches, and most of them belonged to a thing called APAC, the, the Asia Pacific Alliance of Coaches. I didn't know what that was. So I wrote to two of them, randomly picked, and said, I've just arrived in Asia. I'd like to do some part-time coaching work. What, who do you think I should speak to? Who's the best person to connect with that could guide me in that right direction? And they both said, oh, there's only one person you need to speak to. His name's Warapat. And uh, this is him. I, I wrote this in the book. So, But actually, as a side note, I literally reconnected with Warapat yesterday. And I'm going to have a call with him in a couple of weeks. Amazing. So, so it's really nice. Um, so I saw that guy. And before I went to see him, I thought, oh, I best do when you need, when you set an intention, as you'll know, when you help coaching clients, first thing is you've got to be clear in your own mind and heart what it is you truly want to manifest. If you, the clearer you are about that, the more specific you are with the universe and what you say to people, the more the spell you cast is going to manifest what you ask for. So I thought, what am I really looking for? And I wrote this down because it was embarrassing how. You know, like I, I knew what I wanted, but I felt I couldn't really be honest about it because people would laugh. Like I wanted to work. This is the honest truth. I said, I want to work 20 hours a month, not a week, a month. That was really what I wanted. And people go, 20 hours a month. Who do you think you are, you lazy so-and-so? You know? So, but that was the truth for me. I wanted to work 20 hours a month. I didn't want to travel to do the coaching because in 2010, virtual was not a thing. It was only face-to-face. -face. I thought, I've been Skyping my mum while I've been traveling. I want to coach Skype. I want to use Skype to coach clients. So I want to do it virtually from wherever I am. I've got to find a way that's possible. And I'd actually been mentoring someone in the UK using Skype, so I knew it could work. And I, if I join a team of coaches, 
I don't want to feel any pressure, either actual or sort of implied, that I've got to join full time or give, do more hours that they're going to sort of somehow coax me in, you know, gently. I don't want that. I would just want someone to say, Ray, we're really happy to have you 20 hours a month and that's great with us. So that's fine. No pressure. And, um, you know, it's got to be a good team to be in and blah, blah, blah. So I told this to Warapat, you know, I went through the embarrassment and said, I know this sounds pathetic, but this is really all I need and more. I just don't want to work because I've got these other things I want to do, like fundraising, writing and stuff like that. So he said, I think I know one or two people that would, would be wanting to talk to you. Give, us, give me your profile. So that night in my hotel, I quickly made up a profile. I didn't actually have one. <laughs> sent it to him. And he sent it out. And a couple of days later, I got a call from a woman called Danielle in Singapore. She said, Ray, I can't believe we've got your profile here from Morapat. She, she said, I really want to speak to you because we're a successful coaching business from Europe that's been got lots of global clients. And we've just opened an office in Singapore. And so a lot of those global clients are wanting Coach, we just don't have any coaches on the ground that are, any, that are able to handle the level of coaching we have. She said, if we could just get even 20 hours a month off you, it would be just, just oh, it'd be brilliant. You know, can we meet as soon as possible? She said, oh, before, before you come, she said, I've just got to tell you something. I don't know if you'll like it. I said, what's that? She said, we're only going to do the coaching virtually. <laughs> I said, really? She said, yeah, we, we've decided for our business model, it's only going to work to do it virtually. I thought, you're kidding me. <laughs> I can't believe this. The power of intention, you know, out of all the people in Asia, I found her in literally three steps with no effort. Um, and I started working with Coach in a Box, as they were called then. I went to the induction training with them in September and I started working in November of that year and worked coaching clients for them for about three years. Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, just how that's how I started again, oh, and then I found my my I found my I really was in my element doing that because it brought together everything that I'd learned from the, the whole of the journey so far up to that point. All the Buddhist training, all my business experience, my own leadership experience, everything came together in those coaching sessions for me. And I found I thought, wow, I like myself in this role. Mm. I really enjoy this. Yeah, and. Yeah, we haven't really talked about the Buddhist training. Yeah. See if we have time for it. Otherwise, it might be a thing that, that yeah. people just have to wait till they read the book or yeah, right. find another interview with you or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So much in there. Anyway, I know it's just a bit of a long-winded story, but that just the power of intention is, it's, is it's, it's really powerful. And it's yeah. you know, it's a sense, I think one of the things that the coaching industry has is it it does have that possibility to create, to to have that pattern that you were describing. You know, we, no one really knew that. I don't yeah. know, like 10 years ago that it would be a thing. Yes. You know, I guess you were, it was about then that you were kind of discovering that it, oh, it could, it can be virtual and that can be yeah. very successful. And then, so it can yeah. be all those things that you. Yeah. You it's it's to crazy do. now, isn't it? Cause now everything's virtual. No, no, no one ever meets in real life. Oh, especially, yeah. Especially after the last few years. And, yeah. and so then tell me like, how, how does your coaching, the coaching part of your work, look now i know there's again there's other partnerships going on and there's yeah. obviously the you know the book may be forming part of that and the kind of people yeah. that connect with you through that but but how does your coaching yeah. look now and and where where do you think it might go in the future well you know i i i found two organizations that i feel like i align with very very well at the values level and the mission level you know and so i love i've been two teams that i love being part of and so i've been very lucky and fortunate in that sense and so 
a lot of my coaching clients come through the association I have with those two organizations. And so that's working for everybody, for the, for them, for me, and for the person being coached. So I think that will continue for a while because I, I love that work. And how did you make the connections with those organizations? That's the kind of, especially for new coaches, I think that they know a lot of people. And for some people, it's just the perfect it's like a perfect relationship where there's everybody yeah. is gaining so much, yeah. but but it can feel quite hard to know how to find that connection and find the right organization. So how did they come about for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It, it's it's similar to everything I've said so far, so you won't be surprised. There's yeah, I know. I, I know some of the story of the Ivy House one. I read that in the yeah. book. It's, it's it's great. And actually, yeah. um, you probably know we've had we've had Robert Stevenson on the on the yeah. show who does some work with Ivy House. He so does sort of remember that, but but yeah. So so yeah. Give us the give us the kind of universal guidance flavor well, of how these came about. In the in the six rules for happiness that I wrote at the end of my book, one of the rules that's led to happiness in my life that I followed is build sustainable, powerful, supportive relationships. If you are intent on doing that all of the time and you create significance in all the working relationships you have, you will always find a way to you know, find the next thing that you're looking for because you'll have people out in the world in your network supporting you. That and, that, and that's what happened to me. When I met Dorota and moved to Poland from Thailand, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm moving to Poland. That's a higher cost of living. Um, I don't have any savings or not as much as I had. Um, I'm going to need to get a sort of fairly serious income living there. I, I better start reaching out to people that I know. And so I contacted somebody that I had worked with at first place and said, "How are you doing?" And she said, "We're, we're first place was your was your company, yeah, right? I don't yeah, think that's I right. Yeah, my that. that was my business. Yeah." And she said, "Well, I'm about to launch a business with someone, and it's called Ivy House." And she described it, and we'd worked together for six years. And what was great about her, in particular, that it was her that I was speaking to, is that when I saw the end at first place coming, I'd helped her find a job that she could shift into so she would be safe and i had no obligation to do it i didn't get a penny for doing it but it just felt like the right thing to do for me because i really cared about her as a human being and i just really wanted her to be safe and so she landed in a similar job with a rival company and she was sorted and it was someone from that rival company and her were now starting this new business and so i said wow that sounds really interesting i said yeah it's interesting timing because I'm now back in Europe. I was thinking about how I might start working again in Europe. Um, I'd love to be one of the coaches on the team. She said, right, okay, you're in. <laughs> so that's how that happened. <laughs> I love it. And, it. and it is this kind of really frustrating <laughs> thing and, and true thing that has been kind of true in my business as well, life as well, right? That, yeah. you know, form strong, meaningful relationships, and that tends to lead to good things. Yeah. You can't, unfortunately, you can't like predict exactly when this particular person that you looked after really well because no. you cared is going to, there's going to be a thing and you don't know that it's going to be her, but it's a meaningful thing to do. And it does tend to mean yeah. that there are these moments where, oh, here's, here's an opportunity which comes because of those relationships. Yeah. I, I mean, I hate gardening metaphors because they've been, they're so cliched, but you know, if you plant the seeds in every relationship, the flowers bloom over different periods. You know, some take a couple of months, some take a year to flower, but they all will eventually, you know, somehow yield something. And some, and sometimes they don't because you don't need them, you know, so. 
um but it's it's always worked for me it's always worked for me to 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 call on i i asked loads of people for help when i was doing the fundraising and people seemed that they wanted to help me because i'd been in service to them in different ways before so i was sort of you know aware i was aware of that i was aware i'd done provided good service and so i was not ashamed to ask for help um and i wasn't in the in in this case claire actually said to me well that would be interesting because you were my boss for six years now i'm going to be your boss how would you feel about that (laughs) i said i don't mind i've got no pride about that i really don't mind at all i'd be really happy to be in service to your mission and support you to have that come about because i believe in it too yeah yeah and so that's the thing i i mean i i think i'm lucky that i can choose things where i obviously it's a monetary exchange because everyone needs to pay their bills but that for me is often the least important part as long as that's in the right ballpark i'm i'm, I'm happy but um it's more like is there is there energy is there alignment will it feel nice to work because i've only got now 6400 days left mm. and i'm not going to work all of those i'm not going to work maybe half of those or maybe even a quarter of those even so i'm going i want to just work with people i love working with <laughs> that's, the, that's now much more important than how much the pay is but if the pay is important too yeah and hmm. if you look forward with with your coaching work with the book with the partnerships and the relationships and the people you're working with and all those things what are you excited about in the next if you as you look forward oh lots of things i mean one is what's emerging now is because i'm only just starting to talk to people who've actually read the book you know it takes mm. it's a long book so it probably takes most people <laughs> two or three months at least and it only went on sale of two or three months ago so what's emerging are little tiny shoots of thinking like i decided to not have you know all the conventional wisdom was if you're going to write a book you better have all your products ready all your stuff rolled out you know get it all packaged up you've got to do your social media all that stuff it just didn't feel like that for me i felt a kind of a repulsion to that way of doing it i thought you know what i want to do i just want to write a story get it out into the world and then talk to people who have read it and say what most resonated for you what do you need what what service would you need if this was going to be applied in your life how could i do that usefully for you and just see what emerged because some people might say i want some one-on-one time with you or I want to attend a workshop. Are you organizing any? Or I want to do something like this or that. I'll just, I'll just wait and see and talk to people. And that's I'm in that stage now. I'm talking to people. So I'm not sure what will emerge exactly. But what em- will emerge will be what people really want and need because it will come from them. And I'll meet, I'll provide service if I can. So well, it's a lovely little um, call back to the conversation about sales we had near yeah, the start of the conversations yeah. right it's like well yeah. i'm going to find out now what are people what are the people yeah. who who have loved this enough to speak to me who it's been meaningful yeah. enough to have another conversation what do they need and then yeah. what, what can i can i provide something that, that 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 meets that need yeah like and one thing that's emerging slightly is because when i was for in my i was in my mid-40s when i got divorced and so I've had a couple of conversations with men in around that age, around 50-ish, who have quite in confidence admitted, you know, they're struggling a bit in their relationships. And Yeah, there's you know, a great I, bit in your book, which is, as a man who's, you know, had a birthday recently, he's getting remarkably close to 40, worryingly yeah. close. There's this thing you say about um, an author I'd never heard of, Steve Biddulph. Yeah. And the challenges men face in the modern world and the idea of a sabbatical at 40. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I like the idea of a sabbatical at 40. That sounds fun. Yeah. I'm not thinking about that. But yeah, I can imagine yeah. that reading your book, that yeah. one of the group of people it will really speak to is that group of people in in some version of that acting yeah. life that you were in before you kind of had no choice but right. to, to look at it and work out what the hell was going it, on. It, exactly. So I've had a chat with one or two of those guys just to sort of tap into what what would, would be valuable for you, you know, because I'm not a relationship counsellor. That's not my training. I, I'm not. I'm just a guy who's had a life of a story of my own with some insight from it. But, but you know, it's so I'm not quite sure. I mean, and, and then I start I'm meeting people along the way who who I never would have noticed before. Like I found this guy in America at one of the big universities who's led this thing called the Sabbaticals Project. And he's become a sort of like an almost like an authority on the whole issue of sabbaticals and how they're shaped. And I thought, do you know what? I'd love to collaborate with him. So I reached out and said, I'd love to collaborate with you. I have no idea how or what, but I just think my journey somehow is very close to what you're doing. So we're going to have a conversation about that. And so I don't, know, I don't know, but I mean, I, you see for it, one of the things I learned on my journey and I, not just through the journey, but through books I'd read, I don't know if you've ever come across a book called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. I know of it, actually, now you say it, but I haven't read it. It's one of my favorite books of all time. I think I've read it four times. Because he describes what it's like to live your life in surrender. Because there's like two systems. You know, you either push yourself into the world and go, my plan and goal is this, and I'm going to push, push, push to make this happen. And it's got to happen exactly as I've specified it. Otherwise, I'm not going to be happy. And so you're pushing everything else out of the way to focus on this goal that you and it worked for me as a businessman because we drove a business to financial targets. And I'm not saying that's bad and don't do it. There are certain ways that that is the right way, you know, sometimes. And there's another system where you go, I'm just going to flow in the river of life and be guided and directed. And so if I get guided down this channel, that's great. If I get guided down this middle channel fine and if i get guided down this one on the other side that's fine too so whatever happens i'll be happy <laughs> so, and that takes a lot of the pressure off so this is why i'm exploring it from this angle because i love the coaching work i do currently if i had to do that for the next two thousand days i'd be very happy doing that and i could explore other things i could do and if i decide to do some of that i'd be happy doing that and a mixture of the two so i i, I feel like i can't lose because mm. everything feels like it's a good possibility and i'm not attached to any of them you know so yeah it's lovely and you know, maybe the answer to this next question is is that right but um you talked so earlier about leadership being about kind of doing the thing first right leading by example and not I wonder, all, that's one i think that's one part of it not the whole part of yeah it, but an so important well. part and an important part yeah. in lots of in my view in lots of areas of life right again I, like i say i've got a two-year-old yeah. so i'm thinking a lot about what oh, course, leadership yeah. as parenting is and it's this yeah. terrible thing that she does what we do what we do right and yeah. she always will yeah um, to some extent um yeah. not what we say <laughs> yeah and so it's really it's a high level of responsibility just like it is as a leader and like yeah. you said there's that's kind of almost nothing worse for some of us. Maybe it's just another me as another person with a high integrity right. value to have a leader who says one thing and does the other or asks yeah. one thing of people and does something completely different. That's kind of painful right. experience. But I wonder the journey that you've been on, the book, the work you do with people, the conversations you might have. I know it's emerging and I know there's a surrender element to it. But if you look back on the journey, maybe and look back on the book and, and the reflection you've done on yourself there, 
what are the things that you've that you're proud to be living that might be leadership by example for the right people mm. yeah i mean i what i've sort of learned i suppose is how to serve people who are I, I had to encapsulate some of these things for a publicist in america funnily enough she said, if i'm going to talk to people about uh, promoting your book i need to understand some some of the the things you speak about or talk to so things like what's it like to be trapped in a life that others expected you i feel like i've gathered a lot of knowledge and understanding of that and can talk to anyone who's in that situation and look at that from a very creative and different point of view so that would be an example other things like how do you live your life in a way that you're gonna die without regrets you know what well, how would how's that gonna play into the picture of how you decide make decisions yeah um how do you avoid the pressure to conform so you're just doing things because that's what everyone does but it's not what makes your heart sing and how do you handle the disapproval and the opinions and judgments of all your family and friends so these are the things I've experienced a lot in my life, not just from this journey, but I was like that even before. So I had to deal with a lot of that disapproval and judgment. Mm. Yeah. I mean, each of those, Ray, and probably more, we could spend another two hours yeah, talking about. Yeah, I've got sort of 12 more, you know, there's yeah, loads. And, and I'd, I'd, I wish there'd been a chance to talk more, talk about Thich Nhat Hanh and, the, and the yeah. Buddhism and all those kind of things too. Um, but we're almost at time. And, and I guess I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, there is time now. If, if there's people listening, whether they're coaches or or otherwise, is there anything that you want to say to bring the conversation to a close or anything that we haven't talked about that oh. you want to take a minute or two to, to, to just slow down on? Oh, yeah. Wow. Such a great question. It's hard to choose one thing, but since we you, didn't you touch can have it, a few. Yeah. No, since we didn't touch on it, I'd say, you know, for me, the most the most valuable work any person can do myself, I'm saying this to myself is the continued and ongoing job of getting greater self-awareness that's it that's the work yeah. so you don't have to do it that's the, the great thing is you don't have to change the world outside mm. i think it's that a lovely that lovely quote by marcel proust i don't know the exact quote but he's the guy who said something like you only have to to change the world you just have to see things with through new eyes you don't need to change anything outside something yeah. like that and that's the thing like as coaches that's yeah. a, the opportunity in every conversation yeah isn't it? that's that, it that that's it because once you have that possibility you know the way things look changes from how you look at them um, because everything we see and judge is through an opinion or a belief that we're holding so it's a fil it's a filtered perception and if you can understand that basic mechanism and you can sidestep it, you know, you can, you can override it. Yeah. Well, and it's that like not realizing we're the character, not realizing yeah. we're playing a character the whole time. Yeah. Like as soon as you can see that, it's like, Oh wait, all of this stuff. Yeah. What a, what a thing. Yeah. And it, we know we must be a character because there's dramas going on in our lives. <laughs> Characters and drama go together. Oh uh, yeah. And farce. And yeah. Farce. It, all, um, of it, all of it. Yeah. EastEnders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's obvious, you know, in some ways, really, that, that it's a lovely, it's a lovely thing to, that emerged from you there about self-awareness, because that is, that does feel like it's been the, 
one of the you know in the way that you've told the story today the themes of your life right because it was there and yeah. in, in the playground and it was there in the self-awareness yeah. group with with robert and it's and it's gone on and on since then so look thanks for sharing some of that journey with us on this show and in the book and um it's been a total pleasure to touch into it and and just get even that that flavor so thanks so much for being with us my pleasure robbie hello robbie here again a couple of quick things before you go on to whatever else you've got going on in the rest of your day Uh, and that is if you've enjoyed this conversation then you might be interested in becoming a supporter of the coaches journey podcast or joining the coaches journey community both of those are ways to support the show help it continue help it reach more and more people but they also give you other things that you might be interested in if you become a supporter which is paying a small amount of money every month then you'll get advance notice of guests, perhaps the chance to ask questions of guests, um, depending on what membership level you have, and and more monthly video updates from me, all kinds of other bits and pieces. And if you join the Coach's Journey community, then you get all of that, plus you get to be part of a group coaching program led by me um, and attend group coaching calls up to 10 times a year, have one-on-one coaching with me and be part of a community of coaches who want to create thriving coaching businesses and thrive as people while they do it. And um, one of the members said recently that the word that keeps coming up in the members WhatsApp group is beautiful to describe those calls. And so um, I'd love to have you there on one of those calls. Um, and as a member of the community or a supporter of the show, it would mean the world to me and it helped me to keep doing this thing that I love to do and that many, many people have told me is really helpful for them. So thanks very much for listening and hope to have you back with us on the Coach's Journey podcast sometime soon.